This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me, and it is Inauguration Day in America. The question today is, who's happier about it, Republicans or Democrats? As we get ready to swear in Joe Biden amidst a gigantic military presence in Washington, D.C., and also at Capitol buildings across America, we're facing an impeachment trial in the Senate and calls for many Democrats to hold the Trump administration accountable for its misdeeds, and for many Republicans to put the last four years behind us and unify. So I sat down this week with two of Connecticut's leading partisan political minds, each of whom has been sharply critical of their own parties over the years. Liz Karanowitz is a Republican strategist and fundraiser. Bill Curry is a former Democratic gubernatorial candidate and advisor to President Bill Clinton. Both of them feel their parties are in better shape with Donald Trump out of office. But then what happens next? Liz Karanowitz, Bill Curry, welcome to Steady Habits. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Great to be back with you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, Liz, I'll start with you. And what I really want to do is just get your general feeling on this day. We're heading into the inauguration of Joe Biden. How are you feeling about the state of America and American politics after the year we just had, and frankly, the the four years we just had? So you forgot one important inauguration, and that's Kamala Harris, um, who is going to be the first woman vice president, uh, the first person of color uh, to be elected to that role in our government. And I think that regardless of who you are as an American, that's pretty exciting. As a woman, for me, I, I am extremely proud of the fact that it's taken 100 years of voting, but we finally got there. Um, and the next uh, hope is the highest job in the land. So I think it's a really exciting day for Americans. And I've had the opportunity to participate in uh, one presidential inauguration. I went um, to the 2005 inauguration of George uh, W. Bush. And it's a, it's a spectacular moment for America. And I, I, I don't think we have the same sense of peaceful transition of power because of what happened um, at the Capitol on January 6th. But I'm hopeful that today we'll restore some of that normalcy um, and set us on the right track. Bill, how about you? Um, I, I, this is the most optimistic I've felt about my country since uh, November 8th, 2016, and probably longer. Um, and I think that for all that we've suffered, um, uh, I, I think something good is, is, is actually brewing here. January 20th is, I, I think we should all regard January 20th as not only Inauguration Day, but New Year's Day. Uh, we were all hoping 2021 would be so much better than 2020. And so far, no luck on, on that <laughs> score. But I think things are going to change very rapidly. Um, and I, I do believe that the Democratic Party is actually more united than it has been certainly in my life and probably in its history the things that divide us a public option versus medicare for all uh, uh, uh re reduce the college debt by a third a half or a hundred percent compared to civil rights the vietnam war compared to almost any of the great divisive issues of our history this is th these are small potatoes uh these are very very small differences that, that are not that hard to to, to, to transcend and we're also aligned with the country. I've always said that people want democratic ends by Republican means, which means that they want clean air, clean water, economic justice, decent schools, safe streets, all of it. And they'd like the government to spend a little less and when possible work a little more efficiently and maybe be a little less intrusive. 
I think it's possible for us to deal with those historical, legitimate, conservative concerns um, without having to, uh, to 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 bend to the will of a Republican National Party, which is still in the in the throes of extremism. And so that makes me think that an awful lot of good stuff is about to happen. And I would say, especially on economic justice uh, and and middle class economic security, and on climate change, and to some degree on public ethics. And those are the three biggest issues the country faces. I want to get to this idea of uh, Democrats being more united than ever in, in a minute, because I think that's fascinating. And I think a lot of Americans look at the Democratic Party and, and would not agree with that right now. So I, 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 I want to pick back up on that. But Liz, getting back to your reference to January 6th, it seems like, well, not that terribly long ago that we had a, a group of... Um, at first, some protesters, but also uh, a large number of insurrectionists, terrorists, whatever you want to call them, storming the Capitol with all kinds of intent. Some intent clearly was to hurt or maim people who were in that building. Some intent was just to take selfies of themselves on the floor of the Senate. Regardless, it was an awful day in American history. And I guess I'm wondering, Liz, what do you think the lasting ramifications of that day will be? Because right now, there's almost two different threads of uh, the way Americans are looking at that day. One is, it was the start of something that could be really, really ugly. Or it was the end of something that has been ugly and is now going to start becoming better. Well, so I think... um I think it was my hope is the end of something uh, ugly that puts us all in a position to be better. Right. Um, I think for me, we find out new information every day about what transpired during the course of, of January 6th and prior to, um, I think there's, there's got to be an exhaustive investigation and a full transparent vetting of the events that led up to that and and the events that took place that day so that we can punish the guilty and that we can uh, move forward. Because I think it's hard to define what that moment means in the short term um, because it's going to take, I would say, at least six to 12 months to really understand what happened um, and then to, to really react to it, right? There was clearly a breakdown of intelligence and security preparation on the part of the Capitol Police. Um, we're hearing more and more about that every day. Um, what happened that day? Did the president stop uh, aid from coming from the National Guard and the Department of Defense? If so, he should be held accountable. Um, what was happening in the days leading up to it um, to promote the, the violence that and the attack that happened? So it's hard to really capture in the short term what it means has you know, I think for me, redoubled my energy in wanting to be a part of the future of my party um, and and to have a little more hope that there um, there's a way to to uh, bring people together and to and to offer better solutions. So, uh, you know, for me, it's reinvigorated me to say that's not what the Republican Party stands for. That's not who I am. That's not the party that uh, that I uh, have worked my butt off for for the last 20 years. And that's not going to be the party that, that we, we have going forward. But in terms of the moment itself, we have to wait some time, I think, to define what it looks like and, and to really make sure that we understand what happened. You, you talk about punishing the guilty. In your mind, Liz, 
does that list include, you know, the Ted Cruz's of the world, the Donald Trump's of the world, not not those who went in and did the destruction, but those who fanned the flames by essentially telling people something that was not true was true. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think anyone is inoculated from from responsibility here, uh, not the least of which is the president and uh, Rudy Giuliani and company, right? I mean, you know, for me, I, I understand I'm a Republican in New England. I, I know what it feels like to lose elections. <laughs> it doesn't feel good. Um, and you have to dust yourself off, pick yourself up. And go back to the drawing board and say, what did we miss? How can we do better? What are the things that um, you know we need to to broaden our structure, our scope, our message? How can we make adjustments so that we can compete better on the field next time? Right? Um, and that would have been my approach um, to say, I'm coming back, you know, 2024, and let let the party handle it from that perspective. Um, but to continually fail to present compelling arguments that the election was stolen and to not be able to make your case because there's no case to make but then to uh, appeal to the the this calling of people to to the fact that you you were not justly defeated uh, is wrong and it did fan the flames and it did precipitate what happened and there are a lot of republicans who are saying as much uh, at the state and at the at the national level and so I think those voices need to continue to move. And I think, look, the fact that the party is losing uh, donor support and, um, you know, from, from a lot of places that 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 should help to steal the spine of people um, who would like to say otherwise. Bill? Uh, you know, it. I think, first of all, that um, it'll be interesting to me and maybe at some point Liz can come back to this. And for most of the last 20 years, the, the Republican Party in Connecticut has been growing more and more like the National Party, which is one of the reasons it's been harder for it to win. And I wonder if after this impasse, there's much of a chance that it could re it will be able to disengage from that National Party, which I think still ha is in for a world of hurt and division ahead of it, uh, and uh, and begin to, to reclaim some of its own uh, legitimate Yankee conservative roots um, of the sort that I saw when I first came into politics, it would be a great thing for the country if it did. A great thing for Connecticut and for the country that happened elsewhere as well. Um, I think that, um, again, I, I, I do think that, 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 that there's something uh, tremendous going on here, that uh, the Democrats have more power here than the very close margins in the House and Senate would indicate. The Republican Party nationally is, a, is just a disaster area. And their problem of disassociating themselves from the monster they created is likely to occupy them for a long time. I don't know what happens to Trump in the in the Senate trial, but uh, but I do know that his bankers are waiting for him. Uh, the women he's assaulted are waiting for him. Uh, 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 there are the IRS is waiting for him. His creditors are waiting for him. He's, uh, if, insofar as he's going to continue to be any kind of player, I think it's going to be very marginal. It's hard to, it's hard to influence a national political debate between depositions uh, and, and, uh, and off Twitter. And so, but the, but the party will still have to heal these wounds. It may be easier for one reason, and that is that, and you can see this in the Georgia runoff election returns, a lot of that core Trump base, as exemplified in the 
protesters slash rioters that I saw on television, I think is leaving electoral politics. Uh, whether they're going to Waco and Ruby Ridge kind of politics, whether they will be a national law enforcement problem for the rest of my life is another question. Or whether they'll be in some kind of protest politics is another question. But you could see from the incredible fall off in, in, in the Trump, Trump's reddest counties in Georgia for that runoff, that a lot of these people are going to resume their civic habits pre-Trump, which was not to vote or participate at all. And so the, if, the, if the Republican Party has the, has the good sense to see that that's happening and that their future lies in suburbia and, 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 and in other places among other people, they could regroup more quickly. But if they don't have the courage to cut the cord, uh, they could be in, you know, in t- trouble for, for a decade. I, I'm wondering, more. yeah, and let's pick up on that because I think Bill Bill raises the the right point here. If even if there are many members of your party that have always disassociated themselves with Donald Trump or have since uh, his actions on January sixth, there is still an awful lot of the party apparatus that has not. And so I, I guess the question is, how do you see the National Republican Party reforming after all this? And what does that mean for Connecticut Republicans specifically, including a lot of Connecticut Republicans like you who never really wanted to have anything to do with this guy in the first place? Well, so it's interesting because I I agree with Bill in the sense that I think the Connecticut Republican Party, like many states, has sort of been swept up among national politics. But that we can't just point to that. I mean, we had Jody Rell as our governor, thank God, for six years. Um, we had three Republican members of Congress, those old Yankee conservatives that, that you're talking about, Bill. Um, and we got swept out because of national politics, largely in 2006. We lost both Nancy Johnson and Rob Simmons. And then uh, Christopher Shays was the lone standing Republican from New England who lost in uh, Barack Obama's transformational election in 2008. So the party uh, has not recovered from that. <laughs> I am uh as a practitioner uh, have a belief that that's not just a branding issue it's a very tactical issue as well because those things have coincided with the advent of public financing of campaigns um and when incumbents breed incumbents right so democrats in connecticut have had the advantage of incumbency protection for a decade now more and that it's 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 as a practitioner of this it's irresponsible not to have that be a part of the discussion as well, because the national party politics has also coincided with with sea changes in uh, the way we uh, we go about running campaigns in Connecticut. So that's an important part of the conversation that we can't leave off. Um, nationally, look, Republicans won legislative seats. They flipped legislative chambers in states like New Hampshire. Um, we hold uh, in New Hampshire. We have the trifecta. So this idea that Republicanism in, in states like Connecticut and the Northeast and New England doesn't sell, it's, it's, it's not true. Um, I think we have a lot of, of room to grow. Um, and I think there's a lot of hope to be had, which is why I said I, I'm reinvigorated. I, I, I feel very strongly. One of the good things about losing elections is that you get to do the hard work of figuring out what went right, what went wrong, how do you pivot and adjust and go back at at the drawing board. And one of the problems with winning is that you don't get to do that, right? You don't, you don't get to look and see uh, what went right, what went wrong. It's just, here we go, charge ahead. And so I think there's a lot 
for Republicans to go figure out how do we maintain um, this uh, this appeal that we're growing here in Connecticut in places like the second congressional district in the in the Naugatuck Valley, but then also broaden that appeal to go back to the suburban base that we had for so long and say, this is who we are. And a lot of that is candidate driven. The party, in my view, as an institution, will not recalibrate without candidates. Candidates are going to be a really important piece of that. And one of the things we have failed to do, in my view, is is really aggressively recruit and support uh, strong congressional candidates and federal candidates to be a part of the conversation. Because everybody wants to go get their Ed McMahon six and a half million dollar check from the state of Connecticut to run for governor. <laughs> I, I, I want to, Bill, though, come back to the Democratic Party here. You had said earlier that you feel like the Democratic Party is more united than it's ever been. One question about that is that a split within the party that I see is just how they handle this post-Trump moment. Do you have a Democratic Party that clamors to hold accountable Donald Trump and much of his, his administration, and that's all in contrast to this idea of now we need to heal as a nation. We all need to come together and start to work in some bipartisan way. I don't know how, how, how you see that that split within the party, Bill. Well, I think, first of all, it, the, uh, th- there are two questions. One, the, the split you talked about between people who want to perfect a record, a public record of what happened here and those who want to just move on. The president is very much in the let's move on, nothing to see here, folks, school of thought on this. Uh, after 9-11, uh, we had a, uh, uh, some bipartisan uh, 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 examination of our past. After the Iraq war, unlike the British who did the Chilcot Commission and really, really set a record of, of how they'd been lied into war, Obama and Biden decided not to do that. And after the Wall Street meltdown, they also decided not to take any names or, you know, in, in, in that regard. I think we paid an enormous price for not establishing a public record of how we made the largest and costliest foreign policy mistake in our country's history and uh, and not having a real accountability for the worst uh, uh, economic uh, meltdown uh, uh, since the Great Depression. And I think that people have enough of that memory alive that they're going to want to know there has to be a record. There, there has to be enough respect for the truth itself. Uh, and, and, and understanding of its importance to democracy, that we go out and we establish it after, after the, the greatest proved liar in the history of American public life leaves office with 25,000 lies, according to the Washington Post. Someone has to get up here and rehabilitate the truth. As for the party, I'll just point out one thing, John, and that is that, you know, this party's always been more divided than it is now throughout its history and, and often did great things. When we passed the New Deal, this was a party of Southern segregationists and Northern liberals. And it still was when we, when we did the Great Society. The divisions within the Democratic Party now over the public option and how far to go with a Green New Deal are just nothing compared to the divisions we've had before. Second, I'd point out that when the, I, have, I can't vouch for the New Deal, but for the Great Society, a lot of what we did then wasn't as popular. As, the, as our objectives are now, beginning with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. What, what we wanna do now with public option, climate change, living wage, these all have enormous uh, public support. The Democratic Party has not been this closely aligned with the policy objectives of the general public in my lifetime. 
and it has not had so little differences among itself. Compare it to the real differences now roiling the Republican Party, let alone the differences that once roiled the Democratic Party. We're, it's part of what makes this such a wonderful moment. How long will it last? I don't know, a week, a year. <laughs> but in that time, in that time, what could be done now? It, it would be such a comeuppance for Trump if Joe Biden ended up on Mount Rushmore. Uh, because even however limited one may think his skills are, and 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 you know, I don't think he's the, the most dynamic candidate or president we've ever had, but he is in a position to have an historic administration, which will make him an historic president. So, Liz, something that you and I have talked about a lot, and you know, Bill and I have talked a lot over the years about partisanship versus bipartisanship. Something mm-hmm. you and I have talked about an awful lot is this idea of of winning elections and what it takes to win elections. And one of the barriers I see for the Republican Party is that just from a raw numbers calculation, if you look at what happened over the course of the last couple national elections, you seem to have a fairly huge number of people who are willing to vote for someone who many people in America think should never have been president and and has been impeached twice because there are some things about him and what he says that they like. And for national Republicans or local Republicans, frankly, to run away from a base that supports Donald Trump in these numbers, I think an awful lot of people in the Republican Party will say, well, we can't do that. We can't abandon that base that really wants to vote on the same issues that drove those yahoos through the doors of the Capitol on on January 6th. And so that's a question of of how to give up the raw numbers that Donald Trump seems to have have generated in the tens and tens of millions of of voters. Well, it's interesting because I I think that in the first election in in 2016, and and I'm not sure I, this is, you know, not a, a scientific focus group, but a lot of the people that I talk to have really felt a strain in the process of who for whom they'll vote as a lesser of two evils. Right. And that was certainly the case in 2016. I mean, just look at the numbers in Connecticut for Hillary Clinton. Um I, I have contended that the 2016 election was much more a rebuke of Hillary Clinton than it was an acceptance or, or a want for uh, Donald Trump. But I'll just stop and, you and say, but more people voted for Donald Trump this time around. Hillary correct. Clinton wasn't Hillary Clinton right. wasn't on the ballot. Right. Well, and and so you're four years out, right? The the call to action, the call to participate, the voter turnout was much higher, um, and. Joe Biden got the most votes in history, right? Um, but I talked to a lot of Democrats and a lot of my you know, non-participating friends in terms of they're not political folks who still felt there was a, a lesser of two evils component here. They didn't feel like they were really being drawn to vote uh, for Joe Biden, but they weren't going to vote for Donald Trump either. And so I think that's I think both parties need to figure that out. Our primary process is fundamentally flawed and broken and we need to fix it because what's what's happening is we're ending up in this situation where, um, you know, you have a lesser of two evils component and that's not the way to run elections. Uh, that's not the way to govern the country. Um, and so I, I'll be interested to see if there's are, if there are movements to reform the primary process at the national level. 
um, by either party uh, to make those adjustments so that we have a, a better process, a more representative process. Because right now, I, I've done a lot of work in Iowa. I've got a lot of friends out there. I'm very grateful for that. But Iowa voters are deciding the future of the country. Um, and so we need to have a, a different system, in my view. So that'll be, to me, an interesting piece of this is how do we go forward? Look, Donald Trump is not going to be the nominee for president in 2024 for the Republican Party. So we need to very quickly, and I think you will see very quickly, there will be people who are starting to figure that out um, I'm, and, I'm, and fill I'm, that void. I'm, I'm, capture, I'm doing a screen capture right now of this moment, Liz, <laughs> because I don't know that that's true. I, I will... I'm not going to, you know, there's no bet that I'll make, but I, I don't see a path for that because it's too convoluted um, that to get through that, that process, um, you know, here and he'll be much older. And, and again, I, I don't know to, to Bill's point, how much of an appetite there will be for that. Remember too, there have been a lot of studies done on this. A lot of Trump voters were Obama voters too. There's this call for transformational change. These are, these are, you know, sort of, this is a moment and we've got to change something. And I think that's a clarion call to both parties to say, we've got to figure this out. So, so um, does, so as, as part of this bill, I mean, does, does the democratic party, does Joe Biden and his incoming administration, do they have enough of, of this transformational change on their plate that actually quenches the thirst of the people who are, are yearning for some piece of that? Uh, close to it. You know, someone pointed out that Biden's the, the platform Biden ran on this time uh, was a lot like the p platform that Bernie ran on four years earlier. Uh, and um, and the whole country has moved that way. I remember meeting with one of Hillary Clinton's senior advisors just a couple of weeks out from 2016 and um, having a very difficult conversation with him. I said, I don't I don't get it. You know, here's Trump. Now he's running these drain the swamp ads talking about uh, what corporations do to the average person and how unethical the government's become. And you adopted those Bernie points for your platform, but you haven't mentioned them since. You've given away political reform. You've given away economic justice. You're just running on managerialism and, and your own superiority. What are you doing? You know, and they just couldn't hear it. And they also, and this is a conversation we've had in, in different contexts, John. The question is whether or not this is at base uh, a cultural problem from which the Republican Party will be unable to extricate itself, given the numbers, given what percentage of its people turn out to be part of this pretty rabid base, as I see the world. Um, uh, but also, to what degree uh, it, it actually still is economic. And I've seen all the papers about how it's really cultural and status anxiety. But why didn't these people vote for racists and fascists in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s? Why did this all happen now? And the reason that all over the world, the Bolsonaro's and Duterte's and Trump's and Johnson's got elected, I think, is that the broad middle class was under such pressure that we had failed them. And we had failed our own workers in so many ways in developed countries and especially here. I don't know what percentage of the, 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 the Trump voters we can get back, but the, you want to bring people together? You want to you, you want to get some you want to bring people together solve a problem they really care about make their life palpably better than it was the day before i promise you we've never had a consensus bigger than 60 percent okay alf landon had 40 percent and george mcgovern had almost 40 percent in the two biggest losses 
in, in, in American electoral history. 60% is about as big as the consensus gets. We can get there. And the rest of those people are going to have to, um, you know, are gonna, I, I don't know what they'll do. Uh, uh, the, the, that 40% uh, will go different ways. A piece of advice to the Republican Party and to the Democratic Party alike, do not mistake what's happening here for any kind of, you know, permanent Democratic majority or emerging Democratic majority as smart people like Stanley Greenberg say demographics will hand power over uh, uh, to us. In the last election, twice as many people, including twice as many young people, voted libertarian as voted green. If a responsible Republican Party were, were, were to jettison, they're going to have to do this terrible, hor horrible, difficult thing, Liz, I think they're going to have to cut the cord because they're not going to get young people while they're still attached to the Proud Boys, etc., or even Trump at this point. Trump is toxic to anybody under 30, absolutely toxic, including many to, to, to most Republicans. And so you've got to you've got to make a, a clean break here. And then if they do revive some of their better, if they speak to the better angels of their own nature and revive some of their strongest traditions, uh, we'd have something very good here, which is a strong two party system for the first time in a while. I think Democrats are are in real trouble. Right. I mean, the prospect of Republicans building the base on uh, bottom up uh, economic growth and empowering people and business, uh, small business owners, our uh, tried and true policy positions are where the country is. We are a center-right country um, and Republicans who won uh, very competitive congressional and U.S. Senate races, uh, Republicans who uh, hold governor's offices, Republicans are governing America. And our future here is very bright. Um, and the future, <laughs> and, and the future of of the party is in the hands of those leaders. And um, to the extent that Democrats and others want to continue to talk about Donald Trump, he will remain a part of the conversation. But Donald Trump is not the future of the party and not the future of the country. One of the things that has marked a, a big, I think, schism within the Republican Party is the, this sense of what is good for the largest number of people, including small business owners, families across America, and what's good for a very, 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 very tiny slot at the top. And as long as Republican tax policy is, you can never, ever tax people who make billions of dollars just fractionally more in order to support the things that lift up people in the middle and below that's always going to cause this gigantic divide. And there are some, clearly there are some Republican-led ideas that work in governing states. But I think it's fair to say that the, the trickle-down economic concept of as long as the billionaires have as much money as possible, they're going to make sure we're all working, that hasn't clearly worked. And that's sort of why we've ended up where we are today. Well, I think it's interesting because I think if you look at a state like Connecticut, right, where you have Governor Lamont, a Democrat, embraced by his party broadly, he has rejected calls for increases in taxing uh, the wealthy. Um, you know, he, he is governing far more uh, from the center right than I think people in his own party would prefer. Um, so I don't know that this is necessarily a Republican problem. I, I talk to a lot of Republicans around the country who, um, and, in, and in Connecticut, for example, who are looking to 
um, to, to do a lot of the kinds of things that Sean Scanlon is talking about this week, right? Embracing uh, reforms on, in taxes that empower uh, the middle class and working families. Um, frankly, those are our voters. <laughs> uh, you know, we're winning elections in, in those places, both here in Connecticut and elsewhere. So, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out both here in Connecticut and around the country. Because I think as you see these shifts um, in political power, um, you know, the Republican Party certainly has a brighter future, I think, than the Democrat Party, um, who is immediately going to be thrust into, you know, defending a majority in the Congress um, and uh, and looking at, at cont- containing their own internal party fights. I think you underestimate, Liz, how much things have deteriorated since Election Day for the Republican Party. Once in a while, there's an event that has a permanent resonance in American history. The Wall Street crash uh, was one. I think the riot at the Capitol is another. And and, and clearly watching just how, how much Trump's own behavior affected the Georgia election, uh, the, the reading the entrails of that election, which, which took place the day before the riot, I think you're in, I, I don't think you're in the kind of shape you think you're in. And I would add to that also that four and a half million people turn 18 every year in this country. That'll be a 20 million person change in the electorate. And none of them have fascist, racist, homophobic, misogynistic, uh, 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 xenophobic uh, tendencies. Very few of them do. They're overwhelmingly on the other side. So that break I've talked about is one you have to make. But your point about helping small businesses and so forth, I don't think the last few national Republican tax packages did any of that. And that's why you're in trouble. But if the, but I do agree that this is the Democrats' chance. If they elevate small businesses, if they help everybody small uh, 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 keep from being devoured by everybody big, if they give us all a little oxygen to breathe and make it possible to have jobs around which you can build real families and lives, then the advantage is all ours. And if we squander this opportunity, I'm not sure who the advantage goes to, but it's all chaos from then up. Yeah, and I'll just say quickly, Liz, the, your, your point about Ned Lamont, absolutely correct at the state level. When I asked him this question, you know, not too terribly long ago in the podcast, what he said is, uh, I am all for the richest Americans being taxed more at the federal level and in just not putting it at the state level. The reason is because states are still competing for those people in terms of where their tax dollars are going to go. And as we've seen from uh, Keith Fanis reporting and just the uh, the latest bump in tax revenues at the state, those billionaires are paying off for the state right now. They're paying an awful lot of taxes and they're paying a lot of taxes on on the fact that Wall Street is doing really well at this moment. I, I, I'm just about out of time for, for our podcast and I want to get one quick story from each of you if I could. Liz, you said you've been to an inauguration before. Do, do you have any great like memory of that, like a great inauguration story or a feeling or a, a, a memory of being part of that that day in 2005? It was a lot of walking. So I had just started working for Governor Jody Rell in her Washington, D.C. office. And uh, it was we had I was sort of helping to arrange the tickets, you know, with the inaugural committee. And I I got a chance to bring my younger brother and sister. Uh, They were both, I think, in high school at the time um, and got a chance to bring them to the inauguration. But we didn't have like the fun, fancy passes going to the 
falls or anything. We just went and watched uh, and walked a ton. Um, and it was just to be a part of it, you know, just to, to be there and witness uh, the, the greatness that America brings to the table was, was amazing. Um, and uh, it was really special. And I was glad to be able to share it with them. And it was a cool feeling. I work for a governor who's part of this whole deal. It was my first job at a college. So it was a really exciting time. Um, and I, you know, it was almost like pinch me, which I'm such a nerd, right? Admittedly so. But it was just, it was really cool to be there uh, and to be surrounded by the the spectacle of, of our democracy. It was pretty great. Bill, do you have a good inaugural story? I do, actually. First, I've been to a lot of inaugurations and a lot of national conventions. Uh, National and, conventions is another conversation. That's a, that's a different conversation. <laughs> and, and, and Liz is absolutely correct that each gives you the opportunity to do a great deal of walking. Each of each is sort of you're just sort of a little bit not sure what's going on because you're because you, you don't have a TV. You're out walking in the cold or you're in a huge room. But it it seems like the whole country's there. It seems like you're walking with America. It's the most moving feeling in the world. Both of those, especially in inaugural but also a convention, look around it. And uh, yes, here's my big inaugural story. I got to say hello to Aretha Franklin. How about oh. that? Okay, <laughs> take that, kids. That's cool. <laughs> and uh, I can't say that we had much of a conversation, but I got to say hello and thank you for everything. See, that that uh, that right so. there is worth it. See? Yeah, it really was. It was worth all that walking around right in that moment. <laughs> all of that money spent, all of the the, the, the grandeur and pageantry. Yeah, the balls were nothing compared Bill to Bill Curry gets to say hello to the, to the godmother of soul music right there. That's great. You bet. B Bill Curry and Liz Karanowitz, it's so good to speak with both of you. Let's do this again sometime soon. Maybe we can check in on the first 100 days or whatever. I don't know why it's always 100 days, but it seems like that's a good idea, yeah. right? It works yeah. for Liz me. I, Thanks Liz for having me. I'll make a sidecar bet on what I'll have. We'll put a buck down here, and then we'll <laughs> get together and see how it all turned out. Let's let's see how it is. And yeah, if we're all here in hazmat suits and gas masks in a hundred days, we'll <laughs> then we just give Liz her dollar. <laughs> <laughs> thank thank you both so much. Okay, guys. Thanks, John. Good to see you. Liz Karanowitz is a Republican strategist and fundraiser. Bill Curry is a former Democratic gubernatorial candidate and advisor to President Bill Clinton. Want to know more about what's happening at Connecticut's Capitol? Well, you can join me in Connecticut Mayor Budget Reporter Keith Faniff for the last in our series of legislative session preview events on Thursday, January 8th at 7 p.m. on Zoom. For more information on how to sign up, go to ctmirror.org events. We hope to see you there. Keith's going to answer a lot of your questions about the budget. Thanks to Bruce Potterman, Kyle Constable, and Beth Hamilton. George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson recorded our Steady Beats at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankonsky. Thanks so much for listening, as always, to Steady Habits, and we'll talk to you soon.